So we always had a boat in England and Ireland. So we would actually travel on our holidays by boat sailing. And when we moved from England to Ireland, we actually lived on the boat for three months. You know, we were living on a boat and traveling port to port. And we actually arrived in the city in Drogheda. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. Today, I have a very special lady as my podcast guest. Dr. Anna Grichting is an architect, an urbanist and a jazz musician. I think that is a very interesting combination of things to do. And um, we met at the women's conference and I thought that she was an amazing, very interesting lady with a lot of experience. And of course, also a lot of travel experience, which I am mainly interested in. Anna Grichting, welcome to Most Memorable Journeys. Thank you, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I remember meeting you in Cyprus um, a few years ago. Uh, so I'm delighted to, to be with you today. And thank you for this invitation. Thank you so much. It is great to have you. And the first question that I want to ask you, because many people will not know that, what is an urbanist? Uh, so an urbanist is an urban designer because we have several fields. You know, you can be an urban planner or an urban designer. And for example, in France, uh, these these were separated. Urban planning was more maybe in policy, political or, or geography. And urban design was in the architecture school. So uh, in a way, the urbanist is, is really more, let's say, more global. It encompasses, you know, the planning and the design and the different scales. So that's why I use, you know, urbanist and urbanism. Yes. Okay. Because I, I know that many people probably don't know what that word means, but uh, thank you for explaining it. So you lived in many countries, you worked in many countries, you studied in different countries. Did you travel as a child? Did your family travel when you were young? Uh, yes, we actually traveled because I left Switzerland when I was uh, six years old. I was born in Geneva. Uh, we went to live in England and uh, we would come back always for Christmas and Easter. So we were very lucky because we would always go back to my village uh, in the Valais called Leukerbad, a beautiful little mountain village. Uh, so, yeah, so the, that was the, the first souvenir of travels was going from England back to uh, back to the village and stopping in Geneva. And uh, sometimes I remember my father had these, he was working for Chrysler. So he had these American cars. And I remember getting stuck in the snow because they weren't really made for the mountains, but they were very cool cars, these Chrysler cars. So yeah, the aeroplane journey and, you know, the, the cars, the car journey to the village and stopping in Geneva, always stopping in Geneva as well. But then you must have been quite the sight in Leukerbad because Chrysler cars were quite special, were they not? Uh, well, yes, they were. And uh, as I said, yeah, we would sort of get, you know, get stuck in the snow. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so it was, uh, my grandfather was still alive. And, you know, so we would stay with my grandfather actually in the old, you know, in his, in his house. And, uh, you know, we would make the fire. It was still lit with one of these old, um, uh, you know, these old fires where you had to make the fire every day. And um, and also we would take the cable car up the mountain. And sometimes my grandfather would help out and, you know, he'd be kind of helping out with the you know, cable car. So we would be going up and down the cable car. So that's another 
trip, I remember the cable cars. And um, I think also remembering, actually, my father was, you know, obviously a skier, you know, my great grandfathers were mountain guides. And so before we could ski, we actually traveled in his backpack. So I remember that before we were on the skis, we were actually in in my father's backpack. So we already traveled <laughs> mountains in the backpack. Yeah. So I do remember that before, you know, being able to ski. Yes. Yeah. That's um, crazy. In the backpack. Were you warm enough? I'm just I'm just trying yes. to imagine it. Because yeah, you don't I don't remember yourself. ever being cold. I know because some people say that and I've heard these theories about, you know, children in the backpack. And but of course, no, we were never cold. And I think, you know, my father knew and you know, we would we were wrapped up and we yeah. you know they would never leave us there very long. And yeah. um so and then, you know, the other travel we did was, uh, my parents, um, you know, we did the, we would cross the Gemi from Lokabat to Kandashtik. It's because it's an old, very old mountain pass before there were tunnels and, tr- you know, where the trains or you could go through the mountains, you know, so you had to go up above and down with the mules. Mm-hmm. And actually, like about the Gemi Pass is well known because people like, you know, Mark Twain, Picasso, even, you know, some great writers, um, James Baldwin actually came to like about there's a film about him and and my late husband was a was an African American writer so it was really interesting that he was in Lokobat and James Baldwin too but um so this mountain pass you know was was quite famous and I remember we used to cross the Gemi on our skis with all the families so that was another kind of journey a ski journey where we you know we would do this mountain pass uh, with our with our skis and then we'd end up in Kandashtik and then we'd come back uh, we'd come back with the train, but that was another sort of travel that that I remember very well doing from a very young age, and I still do sometimes now. The last time I did with my mother, but now she's a, getting a little a little more older, so she can't ski anymore. But we did it on foot a couple of years ago. Yes, how amazing! How amazing! I always think, you know, I hope I can ski as long as possible. It's definitely yes. also one of my passions, and yes. I started skiing when I was like two years old. We had nothing else to do in the winter because uh, I'm all from the mountains. So you studied architecture. Your first degree was architecture, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes, yes, yeah. So, but before actually studying, because I was going to, when I lived in Ireland, um, I finished school there and I was going to go to art school. And then we moved back to Geneva. So I didn't go to art school and I did a maturité. Then... For some strange reason, I went to university to study political economy. And, you know, that just really was not my thing. So I stopped all that. And before starting to study architecture, I actually decided to travel. I wanted to go to South America, but I decided, um, apart from being a mountaineer, my father was a sailor. So when he was young, he used to sail on the lake and he did regattas with some of the, you know, the sailors at the time, the well-known sailors. He actually built the first fiberglass uh, 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 little snipe boat in Geneva. So so we always had a boat in England and Ireland. So we would actually travel on our holidays by boat sailing. And when we moved from England to Ireland, we actually lived on the boat for three months. You know, we were living on a boat and traveling port to port. And we actually arrived in the city in Drogheda. We didn't live in Dublin. We lived in Drogheda. We arrived on the boat. So, you know, this we were very exotic, this Swiss family, because at the time there were very few foreigners. 
And so we arrived on this sailboat and my first days at school, you know, people say, where do you live? And I said, well, I live in a sailboat in the harbor, you know, and this was not a, a, a you know, a, a marina. This was like an industrial harbor, you know? So, so it was really funny to, you know, that, that was sort of the sailing was another important part of my life. And so I decided actually, I thought, well, I'm not going to take a, an airplane to go to South America. I'll sail across the Atlantic because my father had always wanted to sail across the Atlantic. And I was, you know, in the process of getting my captain's license for sailing, which I, I eventually did get. So, so that was another big trip. Before doing the architecture, I actually sailed across the Atlantic on a sailing boat, not by myself, but with a crew. And then I sailed back to all the way from the, the Virgin Islands to to Greece, on, in fact. So, so that was another period in my life before I then settled and started to study um, architecture in Geneva. Then I came back and found my, you know, my my real the discipline that I my calling. Yes, yes. <laughs> As they say, how amazing! Where about in South America did you go? Where did you travel to? Well, you see, what's really interesting is that because I decided to sail, when, when you sail across, normally the boats sail um, in the season, they sail from, I went to Portugal, then we sailed to the Canary Islands, and from there you sail to the Caribbean. So I ended up actually going to the Caribbean. And what happened is I ended up staying in the Caribbean. So basically I stayed in the Caribbean for six months and I, I didn't get to South America. So And then I sailed back on another boat to Greece. So in fact, I never really got to South America. It was more of a, a year sailing. Yeah, yeah. It was really, you know, um, traveling. And it's interesting because I, you know, be, because of my father, I always loved the sea and boats. And I'd actually, you know, when I was younger, I actually wanted to be a marine biologist. And so, so you know, there was a real attachment to marine, to, to the water, to living. And now I love, I mean, I, I love going to swim with dolphins. That's my kind of latest passion, which I guess is linked maybe to the marine biology. And I, with my students, we've actually worked on uh, designing for turtle conservation. So I've kind of, and I work on blue urbanism. So I've sort of gradually brought, you know, the marine, you know, the life into my work as an architect and urban designer. Um, but the sailing was an important part of my travels. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, this is the thing, you know, when you can actually end up combining all the things that you love, even if you didn't manage to, to become a, a marine biologist, you can always bring it in somehow later. There is always a way, isn't there, if we want to. I think that's a beautiful part of our journey. Yes. Yeah. And and it's, it, yeah, it's it's true what you say. It's some, you know, I, I mean, I just realized that, you know, I think also somebody was asking me or I was reflecting, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's true. I wanted to be a marine, marine biologist. And now I'm, I'm working on turtle conservation with my students. Now, it wasn't always very well understood in, you know, in the very formal academic environment because people say, well, you know, what's got turtle conservation, you know, got to do with architecture and urbanism. But for me, you know, everything is connected and, and we're talking more and more about biodiversity and climate change and everything. We have to do everything. When we design, we have to think about species, you know, so I'm all for going beyond the anthropocentric view where, you know, we're just designing for humans, but we're always designing for all the species and all the ecosystems. And um, and as you say, I kind of saw that somehow I was, you know, bringing this connection to to the sea and the marine uh, into my work and, and finding that connection now. You know, I think it's like music because I always thought I should choose between one or the other and I never did. But the more I go and the more I feel architecture and music are quite, 
you know, more and more connected, in fact. Yeah. And I think music is definitely something that can bridge borders. You know, when people get together, when people sing together or play music together, that's when you forget where you come from and what it all is. But I want to come back to something that you said about um, about species and not just humans. I was listening to a podcast that you were, an interview that you were giving to somebody else and something really stuck to me. You were talking about bees. And oh, you yes. were saying that the bees in, the, in a city are often better off than bees in the countryside or on a farm because of the pesticides. Yes. And that really yes. uh, made an impression on me. Yes, I think, you know, sometimes we have to be open and, and to see that, you know, with the way we've been doing things, you know, that things are never, you know, as simple as we see where we say, oh, the countryside, you know, that's where nature is and, and et cetera. But because of intensive, you know, agriculture and, and farming, et cetera, um, we've seen these examples, as you've said, with the bees, you know, that sometimes, you know, the biodiversity, especially for these insects and animals, is better in the cities um, be because the countrysides have been, you know, overrun with these intensive mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, farming uh, methodologies. And it reminds me because I was working for the Aga Khan Award for Architecture and I was in Russia, in Tatarstan. Um, this was in 2019. And I visited all of Tatarstan. I was evaluating a public space project there, which actually won the award, the Aga Khan Award. And I was kind of thinking, you know, and it's, it's quite, it's an interesting landscape because Tatarstan, I, I realized and learned, um, it has a lot of oil, petrol. And I had been in the Gulf, you know, and I was used to seeing, you know, these big structures offshore, you know, and these the huge structures. But there you don't see that. You just see this countryside with agriculture. And then you see these little pumps kind of dotted here and there. So it's a very interesting landscape because, you know, it's not like a big in industrial landscape. It's just these pumps here and there. But um, the butterflies afterwards, I reflected because, of course, this was, you know, all these planes with agriculture. And it's then that it dawned on me that it must be the pesticides, mm -hmm. that, that these butterflies, you know, must all be just, you know, dying from the pesticides. And, and there were so many of them. And, you know, I remember taking I still I have pictures in some of my presentations and. Yeah, it really struck me. It really struck me to see, you know, to actually see this countryside, beautiful countryside, but then hundreds and hundreds of dead butterflies, you know. Yeah, where you wouldn't expect it at all. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Let's go back a little bit because um, we jumped here and we, we came to, to today. How did you start working abroad? Or did you always, obviously because you didn't only grow up in one country, was it always your wish to work all over the world or how did that come about? Um, I think, yes, maybe, maybe, you know, this nomadic part of me came because, you know, very young, we, we moved when I was six and in England, we moved three or four times and we moved to Ireland then we moved back. Um, so, so maybe somehow, even if, though I'm a Taurus, I'm a very earthy kind of sign, um, you know, maybe that was something that through my childhood, you know, I was used to, used to moving a lot. It's also the, the subject because I became really passionate about borders. Um, this became, actually, it was the, the subject of my architect's diploma. 
And my father's, as I said, mentioned from Leukerbad in the valleys, but my mother's from Berlin. I had gone to visit my grandmother there, just, you know, it was the last years of her life. She'd lived before that in the south of Germany, so we'd often visited her, but I'd never been to Berlin until 1987. So, you know, very, I was already 23, 24 years old. I went to visit her once at Christmas, uh, New Year, because she was on her own. So I said, oh, I'll come and stay with you. And I went to Berlin. That's when I saw the Berlin Wall. So this was my mother's city. My grandmother was there. And so all of a sudden, I, I saw this wall, I saw this divided city. And on the other hand, I also saw this was my mother's history, somehow a part of my history that I hadn't, you know, didn't really know. Two years later, when I was doing my diploma, my architect's diploma, I decided I wanted to do a project for the Berlin Wall. So I went back there. I was actually in Berlin when the wall fell. I was wow. there at that moment. Yeah. So I don't know, there's some kind of destiny. And I was also born the year that the wall was built. So there was all these kind of moments and these synergies, uh, synchronicities. So as from then, I, you know, I did my diploma and then I did my master's looking at how this border had evolved. And I started to look at other divided cities and I'd lived in Ireland. So obviously Belfast was an example because when we lived in Ireland, you know, we were near the border and there was always these, you know, bomb scares in my school. And, you know, so I was very much in this whole border story already. Um, and so for my master's, I started looking at other divided cities. And then when I went on to do my PhD, um, I wanted to work on a on, on a city that was still divided. So that's why I chose Cyprus and I came there in 2003 because I wanted to apply what I'd learned in Berlin. Um, so, so I came to Cyprus in 2003, just before the votation for the Annan plan, actually. And then uh, when I started my PhD in 2004 at Harvard University, I decided, I suddenly decided that it was more interesting to actually expand the scale and not look just at the city, but the, the whole border, which is then what brought me to Korea, because Korea is a buffer zone, you know, a demilitarized zone, like the Cyprus buffer zone. And following that, then I went to several border conferences. I started going to these border conferences and I was invited to Korea many times. And so, so I think it's through these borders and, you know, border conferences, border networks and my research um, that, that, you know, then, then my work expanded, um, yeah, to, to these other borders. Um, and then, you know, through the music as well, I went to Pakistan with a, with a project called uh, Sufi Moon, which was also about you know, bridging cultures through through music um, and the desert bridges as well. So, um, yeah, so through the music and the borders, I would say, that sort of brought me um, to different places. All those borders somehow, you know, you mentioned Berlin. No, who would have ever thought that it would happen? So it did actually happen quite quickly at the end, didn't it? It, it just... Yes. Of course, nothing ever happens overnight. You know, there's always yes. preparation. There's always... Yes. But I don't think anybody saw it coming that fast. Yes, that's true. Because I remember, I think a year, two years ago, um, yeah, I think it was 2019, they, they had the 30 years and I, I went to Berlin for a couple of days and they were, they were, they kept showing all, all these moments. And I remember because I had been in the East and there were the demonstrations, but as you said, nobody imagined because I remember I was being taken, I was, with, I had some friends, I used to stay in Kreuzberg and they were taking me to the, to the train set at the time I'd traveled by train. So they said, oh, on the TV, you know, they're announcing something. And we kind of looked and I had to rush off. And so we just rushed off. And in fact, it was a moment where he's saying, 
you know, they're, they're announcing, oh, the borders are open and they're going, yeah, we'll ask from when. And the guy says, we'll ask from now. And, and, you know, nobody believed it. It was just like, it was in a way, it was just so simple. Yeah. The borders are open as from now. And then everyone started streaming across the border. Yeah. That, right. that gives me goosebumps. I really, that, yes. that was crazy. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it? And then I was in the train. So it was quite exciting because there was all these people getting on and off the train, you know, because yeah. all of a sudden people would just get on and off the train and partying and talking and, yeah, so it was a very, yeah, very, very exciting time. And as you said, you know, in a way, because when I was there, you know, and people would say, well, this war is never going to fall. You know, there were people discouraging me thinking I was crazy, you know, and then, wow, you know. Yeah, so we did, because I used I used to go to a travel conference to Berlin, to the ITB every year. And, and obviously until 88, it was just that part of Berlin. And then suddenly the next year in 1990, the train didn't stop anymore, you know, it, it, yes. it went through. And yeah. yeah, this is fascinating. But, you it's know, these borders make me sad. And you were mentioning Cyprus and Koreans. Yeah. You know, sometimes I wonder, what is it? Do we really need all these borders or do we need them in that way? What is it that makes people build those borders? And um, especially mm-hmm. also in Korea, you obviously have been to North Korea, haven't you? Uh, not yet. No, not no. yet. It's, uh, yeah, it's one, one of my aims. It's more tricky, you know, going to, yeah, I mean, going to North Cyprus was easier. Although I yes. remember the first time I went, it, it was in 2003. So, yeah, and I remember going back and forth. It was tricky once or twice, you know, before they kind of opened it up. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, North Korea is is a bit more complicated, but definitely, it, you know, I, I'm hoping to go in the near future. Yes, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I was just, it's funny because I had this, I interviewed somebody yesterday and I, I asked him and I'm going to ask him, I'm going to ask you too, because do you think people are basically good? Are people good? Are people, because I I always want to say there are so many more good people than bad people, but then all this greed and that, that's, that is what creates borders, isn't it? Yes. And I think, I think maybe greed. And I think, I think ultimately, I mean, I'm, I am, optimist and, and and positive. I think deep down, I mean, ultimately we are all, you know, good and we all have, you know, our shadows and, uh, you know, that's, that's part of us. But I think I would say it's more fear. I think fear is, is something that feeds conflict. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's a very important subject and, and I've looked at it from different ways you know, I mean, if we look at nationalism, nationalism creates in a way the division because it's based, you know, we built these borders and then we created the nations and the nationalism to, you know, divide us. And often where the border runs, the people are very similar. Mm. Uh, Oh, yes. The capital cities are, you know, are the nation building areas. But in these areas where they've just, the, the borders running, these communities are often very, very very similar because nationalism's kind of, you know, it kind of leveled out a lot of, you know, cultural differences. So a lot of it, yeah, is constructed and it's, you know, there's a lot of it is, is fear. And then there's, you know, there's the misuse and the abuse of, of all kind of power, whether it's religion or any kind of power we've seen today now, how, you know, religion's been used and misused in many ways. And I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm all for spirituality, but then there's everything can be, you know, misused. I mean, we've seen all the movement, especially I think recently it's interesting because there's a lot of, you know, things coming to the surface, whether it's, you know, the We Too, the Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, all the problems with the church. I mean, a lot of things are are being revealed, but 
For me, I think, you know, I think, yes, fear and and we're seeing, you know, you know, obviously scarcity of resources, you know, is something that that also develops that. And I think, you know, I mean, education, I mean, I, I'm, I'm an educator, I'm a professor. And I think education is so important. And we so, I mean, I know also in Cyprus, you know, that the importance of the history books. I mean, there's this, the Association for Historical Dialogue who've been doing this really important work of rewriting the history books, because otherwise the children are being told that, you know, the people on the other side are the baddies and the barbarians. Mm -hmm. And even the whole way our history is told today, I mean, I think it's even generally there's, it's still problematic in many countries and at many levels because, you know, history is written by the people who usually they say, you know, the history is won won by the winners of, you know, those who won. I call it his story. You know, it's the way it's, that story is said where it comes, where it's very true. And you are so right about the fear because once you get, I, I have traveled a lot because I was a tour guide and, and because I love traveling and I have learned that we are all the same. We are all the same people. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. I I agree, and I I believe that really, you know, fundamentally as well. And then, of course, and we're all the same people deep down. And then we all have our differences, which is what makes you know unique and makes life interesting. You know, all the different cultures, and obviously, which are adapted to different climates and different you know topographies, and that's what makes you know the world so fascinating as you you know you're a traveler as well mm-hmm. uh, but deep down we have yeah we have the same you know same the same need needs yes. the need for safety the need for love you know yes and yes. connection and you know some recognition and and um so yeah, I, I agree with you. I, but I think I think there's a lot of work being done nowadays, you know, in many different levels. You know, whether it's you know the history or the way we look at history, the way you know, I, I am I am optimistic and, and yeah, me too. And I can see it with my yes. kids. It's yes. a different it's a different way of looking at the world, and there is a lot less um, there's a lot less nationalism. Absolutely, but. yes, yeah. It's like yes, yeah, some of the young generations they're much more colorblind in a way which yeah, is and open to less fearful really because yes. they i think the internet you know the internet has many sides but it definitely helps yes. Glo- yes. globalizing the, the the everybody yes yes definitely yes yeah, yeah. i want to come back to something else um or or talk about something else because i know that you teach in qatar or used to teaching you're not in Qatar now but um I've left now yes yes but you did spend quite some time in Qatar yes yes tell me a little bit about Qatar what's life there like well I I really enjoyed uh, teaching there I was teaching at Qatar University so the national university and I went there in 2011 you know I think it's a fascinating place and this often, you know, maybe especially, I mean, in Switzerland, I had a lot, many people couldn't understand why I was going to live there or teach there. And, you know, there's maybe some, you know, prejudgments about, about these places and the women, et cetera. But when I arrived there, it was fascinating, first of all, because it was developing at such a fast speed. So for an urbanist to see these cities being built very quickly and you know, it's different from Dubai. So in a way it was a bit slower, but a lot of vision. I found that there was a lot of vision and in the way they were developing. 
And also when I arrived there, the president of my university was a woman. So I, you know, there were no women presidents of universities in Switzerland, you know, so I'm going to Qatar and, you know, I'm working for, you know, university where the president is a woman. So, you know, so this was also interesting to see that, that it's not, you know, and this was a mixed university. Also at the time, the wife of the Amir Sheikh Moza, uh, she is the one who created what's called Education City. Uh, she actually built this whole university bringing um, faculties from the, from the US there. So she made a campus with different faculties uh, from American universities. Um, and this was to enable, because it's difficult because of the culture, it's difficult for the women to go and study in the US, you know, because they can't go by themselves, you know, because of the culture. So she said, well, I'll bring the universities to Qatar so the women can actually have also this education, because the men could go off and study wherever they wanted. So that was a brilliant idea of hers. And she also set up this huge research fund for which I was funded some of my projects. And her daughter was in charge of the museums. So it was really the women who was were leading um, the education sector, the research sector, and all the art sector. So it was very, very inspiring. And I was teaching women. And so even for them, you know, there's all these amazing roles models. And at the time, all the great architects were there. So, you know, Rem Koolhaas was there, Jean Nouvel, Zaha Hadid. I met Zaha Hadid there because it's a small place. So I, you know, whenever they came, I would always arrange for me, for my students to be able to go and, you know, meet them and listen. And I asked Zaha Hadid, you know, unfortunately she passed away, but I said, would you take one of my students in, in, into your office in London for her training and she said, yes, yes. So, you know, I went to London and I actually ended up meeting her and she took one of my students in her office. And, you know, so that was the opportunities that that were there. Of course, I was also looking for them and jumping at these opportunities. And also all the big, you know, the great um, artists were there. Richard Serra came and, you know, I met him with my students and uh, we, you know, I had a grant to do some work on public art because they were just starting to develop this public art um, so Richard Serra did a huge piece in the desert. He'd never done anything like this before. And people like Jeff Koons was there, um, you know, just all these really very, very famous um, artists. And so we were able to meet them with, with my students. Also, um, Christo, my students, we met, you know, Christo just uh, before he passed away. So so it was very, very exciting. It was really that, you know, for me, the golden age. Of, Lots of opportunities. Yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. so it was really the moment where all these people were there and you could have access to them. Of course, I'm also, you know, a bit stubborn with my, my Valaison, you know, uh, for you. my tourists. And I would say, you know, our students and I would say, listen, our students have to meet these people. And, you know, I'd always end up trying, you know, managing to to arrange this. And so I, I must say it was a really, really very exciting and creative time. And then also with my late husband, we created the Desert Bridges for the opening of the Swiss Embassy uh, because they were opening the embassy at the same time we were there. So there was a lot of synergies. You know, I did a few events with the Swiss Embassy at the university. They sponsored some of my events on um, green roofs. We brought some specialists from Switzerland. Uh, I was working on food urbanism. I actually created gardens in the university with the students. And then we did this uh, musical project, um, bringing musicians from the US, jazz musicians, and an Alpone player from Switzerland, Eliana Burki. And then we played with local musicians 
from Qatar. We did a big concert um, for the opening of the Swiss embassy. So that was also an amazing opportunity um, that we had to be able to, you know, to do this performance and create this, uh, create this uh, with the Swiss embassy there. Fantastic. I mean, that is definitely very bridge building, have getting all these people. And another thing that I wanted to say about the goal, I think these states, these countries are so often misunderstood by one yes. story. You know, you just hear something, you read something, yes. and then that that creates your image. I did all my coaching education in Dubai and I oh, met yes. some really, really wonderful people in, in, oh, in the world. Yes. Another law, common love I think that we have is Lebanon. You like Lebanon though too. Oh yes, I love. I nearly went to work there, but uh, I mean, in a way, luckily it didn't work out because it was just in 2019, just before they had this, you know, well, first of all, you know, the political kind of, you know, yeah, and then the explosion. And the explosion, I was supposed to be, I would have been living just like right in that neighborhood. So yeah. I knew there was a reason, um, but I would have loved to go. You know, I love this country and the people I met there. And yeah, it's maybe it's just not for the moment. Who knows? No, China. well, let's hope it will change, but it's going to yes. take a while because it's really not good at the moment. Yes. Yeah. Um, a question that also came up in my mind. Do you think women are better bridge builders? Um, I don't know. I've never been asked this question. That's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. Because I know, you know, all, all our, I, we spend time in these uh, women's uh, conferences and I always feel that we connect very quickly and we connect differently. Yes. I, yes, maybe. I mean, I don't know because I've been doing this work for a long time and I, you know, building bridges is a little bit my work and I wouldn't want to say, you know, that I, we do this better than men because, but, uh, but it's an interesting question. Maybe I'll answer by saying, that I thought it's interesting that the, I often refer to the Native American uh, tribes who would, first of all, they always talk about seven generations. When I talk about sustainability with my students, I said, you know, they would say, you have to think about seven generations ahead when you're making decisions, which is a long way, which means mm -hmm. you're really thinking of what legacy you're leaving in the future for many generations. Another thing is they said, actually, in certain of these tribes is actually that it was the, the men did the hunting, but it was only the women who were allowed to actually kill the animals or kill anything. It was only the women because they were the ones who gave life and gave birth. So therefore they knew, you know, the, the value of life and, and they were the only ones who were allowed. So I don't know. I just think that's an interesting thing. You know, they're yeah, very interesting allowed yeah. to kill because they say that it's the women, they give birth and yeah, they the, give life. Yeah, they give life. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I I mean, definitely I'm working actually on a project now with the Women's Federation for World Peace on a space for women and peace and environment in the Korean demilitarized zone. So so it's really interesting because it's it's really a network of women and so, so it, yeah, so it's a, it's a kind of a new experience um, to see how we can, you know, bring, bring these ideas. And I think, yeah, I think it's important because I think at the moment we are in a transition and I think we've been in very, I mean, and I know having been in institutions and universities and I'm very interdisciplinary in my work. And of course, in these very hierarchical institutions, it's not easy to be so interdisciplinary. And so I think we are transitioning from, you know, patriarchal structures to 
more maybe matriarchal, you know, to, to balance them with matriarchal structures, which means also more, you know, horizontal connections. Yeah, hopefully there will be more more space for, you know, for for women and mm-hmm. you know, for for this, you know, for this work to be done. And in and, and, and also I think that yeah, the structures need maybe to change in some ways to allow this. Yeah. You know, time is flying and I'm just looking at our, I I have a question now because my podcast is called Most Memorable Journeys. What do you think was your most memorable journey ever? Actually, it's a very difficult question because there are so many beautiful places, aren't there? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, maybe there's a, just a very quick anecdote um, on an aeroplane because I think I love, you know, how you meet people on aeroplanes. So I remember, the, you know, coming back to Switzerland from Harvard on the aeroplane with uh, the late E.O. Wilson. He just passed away and he talked about biophilia you know, which is our intimate connection with nature. And um, I just remember this journey, having the chance to have this connection with him because I'd been asked to accompany him to this conference that I was invited to in Switzerland. So so I thought, you know, that was a very special moment uh, to be able to have this uh, connection. And I would say the last trip just that was really magical was going to Hawaii to swim with the dolphins because I just love swimming with dolphins. And uh, of course, I love traveling for all my work, um, but I love that. And then maybe once in the DMZ, when I went there with a professor, you know, one trip, um, he took me to the DMZ and we saw these cranes dancing. And the crane is the symbol of this project that we're developing for women, peace and environment. It's a symbol of peace and longevity. It's an endangered species. And there were two cranes dancing. And the professor said, you know, you're very lucky. So because, you know, we ne- we hardly ever see these. I've never seen them. I just felt so blessed to be here and to see these cranes dancing. So they've become kind of the symbol of this project because, you know, coming a- together across the border, these two cranes dancing together, it's kind of this symbol of the two sides coming together. And that evening I was in a, in a restaurant in Seoul, which was traditional food. And there was these kind of shamanic dance. And in fact, I could see that the man was doing the crane dance. So, wow. so very magical. Yes. Yes. And it's like moments. Life is, is about moments, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is so very true. What are your dreams, Anna Grichting? What would you like to do that you haven't done yet? Oh, wow. There's lots of things, but... Um, and you've also inspired me to... I've never swum with dolphins, but now that you've mentioned it a few times, oh, I, yes. I really have to try. Oh, yeah. In the wild. Well, one is to go back and see the dolphins. I mean, I'm just... Uh, I wanted to go, but, you know, last year, but things were a bit tricky. So I want to go back and swim with the dolphins. That's definitely... I want to go and perform with Desert Bridges in different, you know, countries. We have a few ideas, maybe Morocco and going back to the Gulf and, mm-hmm. you know, bringing Desert Bridges, um, you know, doing performances. So that's another dream. And then continuing my work, you know, creating this space uh, for women, peace and environment in the DMZ and also in, coming back to Cyprus and trying to develop some of these ideas of, you know, maybe with women, peace and environment in Cyprus. I mean, I love coming with these projects as well. 
Finally, I think I'd like to start writing my book on on, on borders uh, because I feel it's a time, you know, to to sort of write this book now um, with all my border stories. Yeah, wonderful. And you know, I have to tell you one thing that I forgot before. I wanted to say it when I introduced you. During lockdown, you used to sing on your balcony. And I thought that was just so beautiful. I think this, you know... When it's it's the times when we need each other, and you were help. I'm sure you were helping a lot of people go through a difficult time. Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that. That's so sweet of you. Yeah, because yeah, it was actually people in the street, and then you know they were all the neighbors, and then one of my neighbors who's a bit elderly and she can't hear very well, but she also lives around the corner. She couldn't see me and she couldn't hear me. So I said, well, I'm going to try and do a Facebook live. I'd never done a Facebook live. <laughs> <laughs> so I did it for my neighbor. And then I realized everyone else, all my friends around the world was watching. And it, so it was kind of, it just kind of happened quite spontaneously. And I would say, I, I want to say thank you to my late husband, Cheo, because he often used to play, you know, his saxophone or, you know, his kalimba on the balcony. So I kind of felt it was, you know, I kind of felt he called me out on the balcony because, you know, on my own, because I normally I'd never done really any, you know, these kind of solo performances. So I want to say thank you to to Cheo up there for, you know, bringing me out there on the balcony. <laughs> so, That's beautiful. I'm so sure much. he was there with you. Yes, definitely. Listening to you or yes. playing with you. <laughs> playing with me, yeah. So, um, I think that's uh, any last words. I think we've come to the end, if there is anything else. But it was a beautiful interview. Oh, I'm very, I always enjoy talking to you. Oh, and um, so I want to thank you for spending time, for taking time for me. Oh, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you for inviting me and uh, being interested in, in, in what I do. Thank you. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.